Johnson, and you're listening to the Starting Block Podcast. This, guys, is a show for complete athletic development. Honestly, complete health development, I feel like, at this point. We may have to change that title. It's a working title, guys. But anyways, I, uh, I digress. Um, guys, it's a show for complete athletic development. Regardless of what the show is about, our mission is to give you the tools to win, whether you're the athlete, the parent, the coach. That is truly our objective and what we're here to do. Um, if you're new to the show, welcome. We are kind of unique. We actually have multiple episodes um, within our show. So first episode you'll hear is a biweekly uh, Q&A. That's where myself and my co-host Chris Scarborough, who is not here at the moment, but he will be joining us hopefully a little bit later on. So where Chris and I will take the questions you guys submit to us. That's going to be anything um, related to, you know, training, the neuro stuff, um, performance, any anything in that realm, strength, conditioning, health, we'll tackle it there. And you can submit those questions to us at uh, info at startingblockpodcast.com. Uh, again, info at startingblockpodcast.com. I don't mind if you DM us. That's fine. Just uh, don't blame me if I forget. Um, it's just easy to keep things organized um, through the email. So that's how you can submit them. The second type of episode you'll hear is a biweekly uh, guest interview. Yeah, guest interview. And that's what we have today. And I'll bring our guest on here in just a second. But, uh, yeah, it's exactly what it sounds like, guys. This is just like every other podcast out there um, on the planet. It's where we're going to bring in our friends and colleagues. We're going to talk some shop. They're going to share stories of what they do in their clinics, what they do, their practices, their gyms. And uh, hopefully it ultimately becomes a place for our audience to connect. So, you know, for all our listeners across the globe, this is, you know, these are people that we trust that share our core values and, uh, you know, that we put our name behind as well. And uh, hopefully people that you guys can connect with and uh, you'll benefit from their products and services. And then the uh, final episode you'll hear is kind of a quarterly uh, Friday fact and fire. It's essentially 10 to 20 minutes of me just kind of brain dumping on you, giving you a little bit of insight and maybe something that happens, something that's going on in the industries um, or something that I just feel like needs to be shared for all the uh, coaches out there listening to us. So that is our episode breakdown. We also have a fee. Uh, we don't run advertising. We ask that uh, you just pay your dues, guys, and share the show. If you got value out of this, um, bring us a friend, please. That's really all we ask. Um, we're doing this uh, out of the, our own pockets. We're paying for all this ourselves. We're not making money off this. We just want to try to help bring the information to the forefront. So I guess all you can do is just do us a solid, bring us a friend, and uh, share the show if you liked it. And uh, that pretty much summarizes all the housekeeping stuff, so we'll get to it. Today is uh, New Fit Part 2. So we're pleased to welcome back my good friend Garrett Sal Peter, the founder and CEO of New Fit. What's up, bro? John, oh, yeah. great to be back. Always, man. It's always good to talk to you. Um, dude, do you realize it's it's been a year since we did the first one already? Like, I really think it's been a year. <laughs> I guess you and I have talked in the in the yeah. know, multiple times in the interim, so no, it doesn't feel that Yeah, we talk pretty wow. often, but Crazy. yeah, it's been a year. That hit me last night. So... You uh, you look younger and uh, and actually like more stout. Like you put some muscle on. I look uh, older and more tired. Um, <laughs> you've aged gracefully. I have not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, finally have a you know more consistent workout regimen in the work days. I mean, finally have you know a great team who yeah. can handle a lot of stuff. So I'm able to able to get those workouts in. They're still early in the morning before you know before the yeah. kids wake up and everything, but. I think you got a little little more time. Yeah, to, oh, to get I, I hear you. I've kind of gone through a little bit of a period over the last year or so, a year and a half, where like my training kind of suffered a little bit, and it's actually ironic because like I actually picked up a couple little you know injuries in that process, and it's like oh all right, well I guess you know even though I preach it, I guess strength really is a little more important than <laughs> you know we don't even realize how important it is, but uh, having a routine, man, it helps out. And it's yeah and when you're so busy you know looking after your clients or or you know these other things we're doing it's you know to make time for it, it really is a a priority it feel you know in the last year I have gotten to recommit to that and it's made a difference in my energy quality of life i mean all this all the stuff that you and I know and talk about just you know to not to really be consistent and do it is another another thing knowing exactly that, well, I get to the thing where it's like i I know what I'm doing, but it's like i don't I don't always follow my own advice like i'm I admit I'm very guilty of that. And it's like, when I get into the gym. It's like, I don't, I f- it feels like work to me, you know, it's like, and I don't want to have to think, I just want to follow somebody else's program. <laughs> that's just, that's me. Well, I've seen 
I know you've been, I've been seeing you doing your rucking and I've been, Oh yeah. Yeah. The rucks are a huge part of a huge part of what I do. And, uh, you know, we might as well just go ahead and give a little, you know, shout out to the newbie here. Cause, um, yeah, my dumb ass has developed a little bit of plantar fasciitis. Um, (laughs) yeah. So I'll, here, here's the story. Like, you know, I'm very like, okay, barefoot and you know, we need to have, you know, as little support and shoes as possible. And, you know, our feet need to feel the ground hundred percent because that's how, you know, humans evolved. Well, humans also didn't evolve walking on concrete either. Um, <laughs> you know, and so I kind of learned that lesson the hard way and, uh, yeah, it hurts, but, uh, I'm hitting it. I'm hitting it pretty hard with the newbie and we're knocking it out quick, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, um, we've talked, but, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about kind of some of the new happenings at, at new fit. I'll take a step back. Actually, guys, if, if you're just now listening to this one, um, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the first episode. Uh, like I said, you'll literally find it at the beginning, almost the beginning of our feet. I think it was first like 15 episodes we did or so. Um, cause it's been about a year. Um, I'd encourage you to go back if new fit and the newbie are new to you. Listen to that first, uh, before diving into this one, cause we're going to kind of skip over some intro stuff intro stuff and get into some detailed things today so you know with that man what's uh what's new at new fit we've got a couple things on the research front certainly are top of mind here i think on the last episode we touched on the, uh, one of our first published articles which was looking at the effect of the newbie with no external load at all compared to you know lifting weights traditional resistance exercise and the, the first published study was looking at the acute response. So what happens in the immediately after and in the 24 to 48 hours after a bout of exercise? And that was cool because it showed similar, you know, there's this, this, the pump is this muscle cell swelling where muscle cells actually suck up fluid, blood plasma, which has the proteins and the raw materials to rebuild tissue uh, that actually gets sucked inside the muscle cells. And that's one of the precursors to hypertrophy. So we saw similar effects, but then there's the question of what happens now over a full training cycle, over you know six to eight weeks or something like that. So, so we actually, in the second phase of that study, answered this question. And this is, this is the next article that was just accepted for publication. Uh, perhaps by the time this is actually released, it'll be out. Whenever it is, of course, we'll, we'll share the link with you on yeah. PubMed and whatever the journal is. But uh, this, saw, this, this looked at uh, individuals who were their own controls. So they were doing knee extension exercises looking at growth of the quadriceps muscles over this full training, several week training cycle. And um, they did one leg, they flipped a coin. So some did the right leg and some did the left leg, you know, newbie versus exercise. And the one leg was doing traditional resistance exercise in the 75 to 80% one rep max range. Um, So they're doing, uh, I believe it was four sets of of work to, to fatigue. And then the other side, other leg, they were doing, the newbie with no external load. And they're looking at what type of changes are you seeing in, in muscle growth over this full training cycle. And the, you know, the, the findings that I, at least I can summarize, you know, I yeah. don't share the, the exact numbers and everything until it's, till it's released, but the, you know, basically the muscle growth was, was virtually the same using the newbie and versus using traditional resistance exercise in the area around the electrodes. So it shows that it was more, I believe they were down on the VMO and vastus lateralis. So it shows that you can, you know, can be more targeted and precise in what you're developing. You know, like bodybuilders tell us anecdotally, they can use it by, by accelerating the process of neuromuscular education and activation, you know, to help bring up lagging body parts and activate certain areas that need to grow. So this showed that there was an effect there and it was, it was fairly localized you know, underneath where the electrodes were and around that area. So it wasn't the whole leg or the whole quad. It was you know, in the area of the electrodes. So if you want more, you know, growth, you obviously mm-hmm. want to put, you know, place more pads and stuff like that or use larger pads. But um, there was a specificity effect and there was a, you know, a muscle growth effect. That's awesome. Um, so it was really cool to see that. It, it's, uh, you know, cool to, to see that study yeah. finally get written up and accepted and, you know, should yeah, be that's very awesome. soon. Um, and then, and then, uh, well, one other one other comment on that. So the study design I thought was cool. It, you know, it was the professor at the University of South Florida who did it. He's in the muscle physiology, and he's lab. the one that did the first study um, too. Correct. Same, same. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Dr. Sam Buckner. 
Yeah, so so he's a great guy, uh, you know, great educator, professor, you know, would be perhaps even even a good guest on this podcast too, but uh, around muscle physiology. We had him for an episode on our podcast and have him on again probably to talk about this study too. Uh, and one of the his idea for how to design it I thought was was kind of elegant and cool because each subject is essentially their own control because how do you control in a study for other volume of training for sleep for right. nutrition for stress levels for hormone you know all that stuff so each each patient each sorry each each subject is essentially their own control because they're between their left and right legs their sleep their hormones their stress levels everything is going to be the same the only difference is going to be the training stimulus so I, I, I there, you know, there's yeah, pros and sure, cons to every study design, but 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 I kind of like that. I thought it was yeah, interesting. I, I like that because I'm just writing down sure. a couple notes here, and that's actually one of the things that I was I was curious to ask you was some of the program design. Um, you know, because I have I have personally found in my experience, and um, you know, if if you guys didn't heed my advice to listen to the first episode. You know, I've been doing things like this with Garrett for a long time. We go way back. But one of the things that I've experienced is when training with the newbie, I've always found it a, like training, not not from the neuromuscular rehabilitation wellness side of stuff. I'm talking about the training component to it is, you know, monitoring and regulating, um, you know, the intensity or the amount of quote unquote volume I utilize with the newbie. Um, I've always found that to be a little bit challenging because there's been times where like I've completely overshot it and just blow myself up. And there's times where I feel totally, totally great. And so I think utilizing the way that Dr. Buckner did, like, you know, an individual control is kind of interesting in how they manipulate that. So can you talk a little bit about how the program was designed, kind of what, what these athletes or clients did in their program? This one, I mean, this was very basic. So this was just you know, trying to control the variables as much as possible and just looking at the, this, answering this question about muscle growth. And the, uh, it was, you know, I, th- I think it was four sets. I mean, I could pull up the study and tell you exactly the, the sets and reps, but I think it was, it was basically just, um, uh, you know, twice a week knee extension exercises, you know, with the, with um, the newbie on one side, you know, and, no external load and then traditional resistance on the other side. So this one, uh, I don't think, you know, does it, I don't think it, unfortunately, cause I love talking about, you know, program design and progressions and stuff like that with you too. You know, not, not a ton of that here, but that's by design because it was really trying to control the variables and just kind of look at this one question of can the, can the newbie help with, you know, with muscle growth in a way that's similar to resistance exercise, because there's times where, whether it's, you know, someone post-op or at risk of re-injury or someone, maybe an older individual who who is, you know, for one reason or another, can't because of access or mobility or safety, you know, can't lift weights but needs some of the benefits of resistance training because we know there's many, especially for supporting healthy aging yeah. and, and all those things. So um, it, was, it was more just looking at, just yeah. kind of looking that's at that. Hu- I mean, that's huge that information. I mean, very huge simple. information <clears throat> to be able to, you know, provide people i mean that's 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 great the i guess my next question with it is i'm already you know i'm already kind of thinking ahead like okay where do you go where do we go now like um i think it's interesting that it it impacted specifically where the electrodes were and not the muscle i guess quote unquote as a whole would that be an accurate statement uh that that's a that's a good question. So I I got to review a draft of the manuscript. Uh, you know I I will, uh, rev, you know I'll certainly read the the finished publication and see what exactly their conclusions are in terms of the radius around the pads where it was helped. But my my impression was that it was essentially all of the, you know the the VMO that it was on, for example. So it was that that muscle, but not the rec fem. You know, so not the not the rest of the the, the quad as a whole, but just that that muscle. So uh, I don't recall exactly how precisely they were able to to quantify that growth, but there there is there is some uh, discussion of that in in the actual paper too. So yeah, we can, yeah, we can definitely that's find awesome. An so that's one great study, and then you've got another study that is either out now or getting ready to come out. Talk about that one. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I was just uh, we we just got to talk about it a little bit. Um, so I was at an event 
a couple weeks ago where we, we were with a group called Hands-On Diagnostics. And these, uh, this organization, they train, they're, they're one of the two or uh, one of the two national certifying bodies that certifies uh, physical therapists in how to do musculoskeletal ultrasound. So like, you know, you can take an ultrasound like with pregnant women, look at the baby, right? We look at ultrasound. This is using ultrasound to look at, you know, tendons or muscles or cartilage and assess damage. And it's, it can be it can be more robust than MRIs in you know, large part because it's it's more accessible. You can look at more angles. You can look at you can move people around. And Stop look flexing, at it as, bro. As they're moving. For those of you on audio, people. he's sitting here like flexing, <laughs> like in the camera. <laughs> <laughs> yes. now, now I'm blushing too. So I totally got you off track there. I know. So, so they train. So they train physical therapists in musculoskeletal ultrasound diagnosis, which is which is fabulous, and also electrodiagnostics, so EMG, nerve conduction velocity testing. Uh, so it's it's a great group, and we you know, we happen to have overlap. There's several clinics that they have trained and certified that are part of their network that also use the newbie, and you know it's it's very cool for them because the, these physical therapists, you know, a lot of them. Right. They're using these. They're using these like next generation, super sophisticated, fabulous diagnostics. But then their treatments are are sort of like you know the right. old traditional physical therapy and stuff like that. So so when they're using the newbie, uh, they can actually have a treatment that's kind of commensurate with or on that same level with how advanced and effective and cool their diagnostics are. So so we you know have a you know, great collaboration in that regard because because what they're doing what we're doing plays really well together and so the the head of this organization is a fascinating guy he's a Greek guy he's a physical therapist and also a PhD and a medical doctor and so so he so we we had we kind of brainstormed together things we might be able to do and and had this idea of a neuropathy study and it's it's really interesting for several reasons uh, neuropathy on its own I, I didn't even realize how how widespread it is, but there's in the U.S. alone, tens of millions of people have neuropathy. The most common reasons being diabetes and okay. chemotherapy-induced neuropathy. But there's idiopathic neuropathy. There's other other reasons. So t- there's tens of millions, uh, you know, of people that have that. But then also, this this extrapolates. You know, nerve. There's also nerve damage in a variety of other neurodegenerative conditions, or even in you know, neurological, you know, trauma injury, traumatic injuries. So there's there's all these different reasons where, or, or situations where, you know, nerve injury and looking at the process of healing from nerve injury is very relevant. So, so we were, you know, excited about the opportunity to do this. And, and for the study, what we did was take alternating current and direct current compared head to head. So, you know, if people haven't listened to this, in our previous episode, you know, part of the, the, the value proposition of the newbie is that it uses direct current. There's really interesting history there where direct current was known for many years, but you know, if you got high enough levels into the into the body to be therapeutic, it would actually sting and burn the skin. So for it got thrown out for decades, and and you know we're trying to mm-hmm. essentially bring it back, right? So so the benefits are we're probably best known for the the, the fast functional changes, accelerating the process of neuromuscular education because of the effects on the nervous system, where we can find where the nervous system is guarding, protecting, inhibiting, and then you know really accelerate the process of re re educating, reprogramming those areas. Uh, and that's that's awesome. There's also another category of benefits whereby creating these direct current electric field gradients actually help to orient cells, they, you know, cause cells to migrate and, and influence these different physiological processes related to healing and regeneration of, of different tissues. And there's there's work done mostly in animal models so far. So part of why I was excited about this study is that this is, you know, at least to our knowledge, one of the first times that we're really looking at the effects of direct current electric fields on tissue healing in humans, and we're comparing it head-to-head, side-by-side, with alternating current traditional electrical stimulation devices. So we had, you know, 150 neuropathy patients. Average age was 74-point-something years old. Uh, diabetic neuropathy patients. So this is a population where it's been written off that they can never heal or regenerate in any meaningful way. You know, the, the standard of care is basically a variety of drugs, you know, some to help with pain, you know, traditional physical therapy that is more just to kind of, you know, quote unquote, manage things rather than, than really promote any sort of healing. And 
Now, you know, going through the study, the, the patients got the EMG uh, nerve conduction and nerve conduction velocity test to look at both the, the velocity of nerve conduction, the speed of nerve conduction impulses going down the nerve, and then the amplitude of that. So, so you can infer the status of myelin. You can infer the status of axons based on you know, myelin being more related to the velocity, the axon health and, and bandwidth, essentially, um, being inferred from the, from the amplitude. And uh, they did that at the beginning. Also, uh, the Toronto, uh, Toronto neuropathy scale. So this is looking at different measures of their you know, disability and, and quality of life and things like that. And, uh, and then two sessions. So the, the treatments, again, actually just like the previous study, the treatments here were very simple just to control the variables. We just yeah. did a, a foot bath. So, of course, you're familiar with that. But, you know, for people listening, if they don't know, we're basically immersing one foot with an, with an electrode in, in a tub of water. So the water is dispersing that throughout all the different mechanoreceptors, different nerve pathways in the foot. And the other pad was up on the low back. So that direct, direct current gradient is going along the entire length of the peripheral nerve from nerve root exiting the spine right all the way down to the foot. And uh, so they did two, two of those treatments per week for six weeks, 12 treatments, you know, nothing, nothing crazy, just kind of a basic thing, you know, 20-minute foot baths. Um, and so the control group did that same foot bath with a, with a more traditional, like a, you know, like a 10, mm-hmm. you know, traditional alternating current device. And then the experimental group did it with the newbie. And then at the end of those six weeks, they retested the same electrodiagnostics and uh, Toronto Neuropathy Scale, they, they, they looked at all that. And uh, this, so this is not yet, uh, also not yet published data, but we just got to hear it so I can at least describe it a little bit. I'm really excited to get this published because, uh, again, this is a population for whom there, there really are no good answers. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of kind of crazy, you know, in a, in a sad mm-hmm. and scary and bad way, right? Kind of crazy. Um, but uh, we saw nerve... You know, we saw in improvements, statistically significant improvements using the newbie. Well, actually, let's say, say first with the alternating current group, uh, you know, traditional electrical stimulation group, ha- what happened is essentially what, what most people expect here, which is very little. Maybe a little bit of moderate, moderate benefit from doing something, but nothing statistically significant and nothing very meaningful. And then in, in contrast, the group that used the newbie, there were significant increases in nerve conduction velocity, statistically significant, uh, meaning you know better than chance. There's clearly an effect here from the intervention. Uh, increases also in nerve amplitude for several of the nerves. So we're looking at is the lower extremities. So we're looking at uh, sural nerve, tibial, tibial nerve, uh, peroneal. You know those those nerves in the in the more distal lower leg. Um, so seeing these seeing these changes, increases in the neurop- Toronto neuropathy scale. You know subjectively. Uh, Patients are, are experiencing feeling in their feet where they hadn't had any or, or you know, in, increases in feeling for the yeah. first time in, That's in awesome. years, reduction in pain, improvements in function. Um, but the, the, one of the cool things is that, like, those subjective data experiences are, are awesome, of course, because that's what people mm-hmm. feel, right? That's what they experience. And also the objective data is cool because it shows that there's, there's actual changes there. So. So this, you know, again, to, to at least my knowledge and read of the literature so far, is the first time where we've actually seen some sort of connection between applying these direct current electric fields and regeneration of tissue in the body. So we're seeing regeneration of, of nerve tissue here in a population where we know it's not just going to yeah. happen otherwise by chance, right? So uh, it's, you know, it's, it's very exciting and I'm, I'm you know, can't wait to can't wait to share yeah, this that's, share this with that's the world huge. when the, when the that, official that's huge because it ad, it adds validity to you know what we've always known and have always you know seen right uh, I mean we've always seen these types of results and the clients or you know patients can feel it but like to now have that validity really behind it that that really puts puts the newbie on a whole different level um yeah. Uh, I think so. I think so too. And you know, it's interesting. And there's uh, there's there's this concept of the product adoption curve or, or product adoption life cycle, where in the beginning it's you know early adopters, people who are are more open minded, people who are willing to go based on their experience or the experience of someone whom they trust. And then you know, as you kind of cross into the 
early crossing this chasm uh, into the early majority. You know, more and more people, the you know, majority of people, you know, they they need to see the research. They need there needs to be ten or fifty or a hundred published studies, or it needs to be the gold standard. It needs to be the accepted standard of care. You know, for for some so so it's sort of a process of. I mean, like you, with the experiences you and I have had, like we know in our soul how, how, yes. how well this works and how important this work is because we've seen what it can do for people. And, you know, for to communicate that with many people, we need to speak this language of research and stuff like that. So, you know, we, uh, you know, invested and we have a, a full time Ph.D. neuroscientist who runs our research program, you know, in part so that we can can you know, help support studies like this that, you know, I, I was hoping would show, but, you know, of course we had to, had to wait and see the, see the final data, see, see what, yeah. what would really come of it. Right. So I'm, I'm grateful and excited. Yeah. I mean, how it really turned out. I, I really truly believe that, that that can really take things to a whole new level um, for, you know, new fit and newbie practitioners. Cause like we were talking about off air. I mean, I, I didn't realize that the population that many people suffered with it. I mean, I know clearly I have seen a lot of people that deal with that on a regular basis, but to that, that degree, that many people, that's, um, that's a whole new area that people essentially just were, most of them just don't have any hope with it. Um, I can think of two people the past week yeah. I've seen actually and, and, you know, with some type of you know, nerve related issue that, you know, leg feeling heavy, loss of sensation, something like that. And the newbie has, has changed that, you know, in a very short amount of time. Now I think next. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad, glad to say you glad to hear you bring it down to the local level too. I just want to mention that. I mean, a, a big part of our enthusiasm for doing stuff like this is that, you know, that, that data and that study, everyone that has a newbie, you know, it's, whether it's you there in Memphis or Chris down in Birmingham, right, or anyone else. I mean, we want we want you to be able to have the, you know, we're going to have infographics and, and stuff about this study. We want you to be able to share that with everyone in your community. You know, I mean, of, of course, we're trying to get the word out about the newbie, but uh, one of our core values is success through the success of others. Is you know, being we want to we want to have these materials, whether it's a video of Saquon Barkley using the newbie that that you can share with your athletes, or this data that you can share with you know, the older people who have neuropathy in your community to, to motivate them to want to come in and work with you. You know, we want everyone using the machine to be successful and, and share these benefits. Since we're talking about the neuropathy side of things, um, you talked about the, uh, the method was a foot bath with, you know, the, one of the pads up on the, the lower back. I thought that was interesting because I've actually started doing that myself. Um, and it's just a coincidence that we're talking about it now, but do you foresee, how do you foresee this study possibly changing any type of protocols that you may have or would it? Uh, that's, that's a good question. I mean, a, a little bit of where, where my mind goes first is, you know, sort of, it's similar to the, you know, our discussion about the, the hypertrophy study where here the methodology was, was, intentionally simplified so that we could control our variables and just see what what's going on. So I think that, you know, if, if we're working with a neuropathy patient, we actually in, in, you know, a, most clinical settings would want to do even more than that. That was just kind of like the bare bones to see if there's an effect here and try and pick something that, you know, applying the 80, 20 principle, try and pick something that's most likely to have an effect on the greatest number of subjects um, and so we picked the foot bath. And, and for that reason, if you know if someone comes into a, a clinic that has a newbie, we'd recommend, if you only had one thing to do, we'd recommend doing that and starting there with the foot bath too. But there's other things that we can add in that I, I think, you know, we can do even more for patients in a clinic when we have time to individualize things and we don't have to just follow the protocol of a study because that's how it's designed. So I think there's even more we can do there. And, uh, you know, I think the, the biggest takeaway is just is just understanding the, the possibility and the, uh, to impact people with neuropathy and, and, you know, what direct current can do there and just kind of op- open it up. But I think um, for most people who are treating, we probably want to do even more mm-hmm. than just what was done. No, absolutely. And I think when you combine that with a lot of other things that we all kind of naturally bring into our work, you know, a lot of, uh, I guess I could say alternative approaches or Eastern medicine, whatever you want to say, just putting the body back in a place that's working for you, not against you. And then utilizing something like the technology of the newbie that can just drive things up so fast and so quick. Um, that's life changing stuff, man. Yeah. And even, you know, and for the, for the diabetic neuropathy population, I mean, you can, there's things you can do that were not a part of the study. We didn't do anything to touch 
someone's yeah. lifestyle and blood sugar control, right? Diet and you know other activities and lifestyle, all these other things that when you're working with someone and you establish that that relationship, you know, you can certainly provide some recommendations on those other fronts too and, and be able to help people, you know, it, 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 that would be an accelerator on all of this uh, as well. So there's all these, all these other things too, but it just, you know, just there's a takeaway that we can definitely help people here. And then I think it also extrapolates. I mean, if we're seeing improvements in, in, you know, axon growth, collateral sprouting or, or regeneration of, of that tissue and, and increases in myelin, I think we can also extrapolate to other populations, right? We, you know, we talk, talk a lot in our community in, in new fit nation about ms patients right we've been able to help a lot yeah, I'm of glad MS you're going down that route because that's now. where i wanted to I head next yeah this well this this i mean if we're seeing objectively increases in nerve conduction velocity and we can infer from that changes in, in myelin you know it gives us some even more scientific grounding uh to to really you know pursue those types of of uh changes okay so Let's let's kind of get into the the MS um, side of things a little bit, and also kind of addressing a couple of the episode the podcasts that you've put out. Um, if y'all don't listen to Garrett's podcast, the uh, what is it, the Undercurrent podcast? Is that correct? Yeah, um, it's awesome. Right. And you've had a string of about five or six excellent episodes, particularly the one with um, Irene Lyon on it, and. Uh, and then you had one, uh, the psycho-emotional spiritual side of MS as well. And admittedly, I haven't been able to finish both of them, but I've got bits and pieces of it. And I feel like they're all interconnected with kind of what we just discussed as well. Um, talk a little bit about the, the navigating trauma in the body and that conversation that you guys had. Yeah, this is a very interesting topic, and I, you know, I, I don't want to overstate my qualifications or, or try to come off as an expert in helping people deal with trauma. You know, I, I did an episode with with Irene Lyon, this woman who's a very experienced and effective trauma therapist. I did a solo episode introducing some of these principles, some of these concepts into into our community here, so that we can be open to. The fact that you know there's a lot of ways we can help people. Um, I, I was particularly inspired by reading the book "The Body Keeps the Score," which I'm sure many people are at least aware of. If if you haven't read it yet, anyone listening, I would encourage you, um, even if even if you don't see yourself as someone who deals with trauma, because you'll learn a lot about you know injury physiology uh, stuff like that too. But you know a few things that struck me about that, just like you know we talked about how many people have neuropathy, and that number was even greater than I realized. You know I. I I'm a little embarrassed to admit, but I didn't realize how many people, uh, you know, have been sexually abused. I mean, you know, in the, in the book, there's some statistics that are like one in four people, have, one in four women have had, you know, abuse attempted against them at some point in their lives. I mean, hearing this, especially as the father of two daughters, I mean, my my eyes were open wide when I was reading that page. I, I was like, just, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't realize this statistically, you know, I know, I know there's problems, right, in society, but I, I, didn't, I didn't realize it was, you know, statistically, it was quite that, that high of a number. Um, and so there's, there's, you know, some of, some of the motivation for introducing that, the, the topic was just from reading that book and seeing how the effects of, of you know, whether it be, whether it be, you know, that type of abuse or whether it be you know, PTSD in, in war and veterans of war and military service, all these different different effects and how how that they get essentially stuck in the nervous system, you know that that motivated me. Of course, we're dealing a lot with the nervous system, so you know, interested in that. And then also, I've had a few experiences over the years where you know we'll be mapping with someone, for example, and we'll we'll find a spot, and all of a sudden, like a memory will come back. They'll be like, "Oh my gosh, I remember when I fell on this or I injured that." And huh. it's, I, I, it's, I didn't it's, think that's where you, you know, were going. That's that's really intriguing. Okay, <laughs> it, 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 expand on that. You know, to, to my, well, you know, to my to my untrained eye, it's it's it appears as if there was some something about that memory was stored in that area, and when we scanned over it with the newbie electrode, you know, for some reason that that association it came that it came up for them, right? Something, Ooh, okay. something like that. I'm gonna have um, to pay attention to then, that now. You got you got me intrigued. Okay. <laughs> 
And you know, I've then also had experiences of people who have, have had chronic pain where you know they've tried a lot of other things and it's helped. And it seems like part of the issue, you know, we talk about this biopsychosocial model of pain, where pain is not just physical trauma and something hurts. Pain is influenced by the the psychological and social dynamics in, in someone's life. Um, there's all these other things. So so uh, I've you know seen some cases over the years where people are having difficulty resolving chronic pain, and it seems like there's some sort of of influence from you know previous trauma in their lives that that is somehow related to this pain. Some I mean sometimes it's very direct, like someone was sexually abused and they're having pelvic floor pain. Uh, sometimes sometimes it might be a little more you know might be seem a little less directly related but it, it seems to be an influence as well and so uh, you know i've kind of come to the current understanding that that when there is a when when something traumatic happens to us you know we talk about you know the trauma of injury you roll your ankle and uh or you or you get into a car accident or something like that uh the body will, the nervous system and brain nervous system will will brace and guard in certain areas, thinking, "Oh my gosh, that could happen again," or it's going to try to shut down certain areas so that you don't load that area, you know, as a compensatory mechanism, so you don't injure it worse, or you unload it, you know, well, it might be healing or something like that. So there's these different these different uh, responses to to physical trauma, and I, you know, I believe that those same types of responses happen to other types of trauma. When we think about when we think about you know the trauma of of abuse, neglect, the trauma of of war or combat, you know those sorts of things. And I think that the, there's a similar type of neurological pattern that's imposed on the body in response to those types of trauma. And all the there's all, you know treatments like EMDR and internal family systems, these other things that that are mentioned in the body keeps the score are awesome. And I think that the newbie can add to that because when we when we scan around, do our mapping process, we're finding where the nervous system is imposing protective patterns on the body, whether it be from physical trauma or these other types of trauma. And by finding and and by finding those areas, it allows us, you know, insight into where the nervous system is holding and guarding. And then by stimulating those areas, we give the person, give their brain and nervous system an opportunity to recalibrate to ease off on some of those guarding and protective mechanisms. And, uh, you know, based on some of these cases where we've had breakthroughs with people who have chronic pain that seems to be related to trauma and they've tried other things with, you know, perhaps marginal benefit but not significant relief, we've been able to make breakthroughs in a way where, you know, I just, I feel like there's something here, again, not claiming to be an expert on the subject of trauma and, you know, why I wanted to interview at least one and hope to interview more experts on the topic. But, there's there's something that I think we can add here, and you know it could be in conjunction with working with, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. psychologists or LPCs or, or LCSWs, you know, people who are who are working more with this population. I think there's really something that we can add here that's that's helpful. I think you know even Master Reset, you know, our version of this vagus nerve or electric meditation protocol, I think can also be helpful for these people because there often is a dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system. Um, but yeah, I just I feel very strongly that there's oh, an avenue here by which we can help these people in a very profound way. And there's again, like with with neuropathy, there's just there's so many people who have experienced trauma and and for whom it's you know adversely affecting their life and their health in some way. And I really I really wish to help open up the dialogue well, around I think this you, topic. You've, you're off to a great start, and and. I'm right there with you. Like we we have we can't say enough. We're not experts in the trauma or you know psychological fields, but you're going to as a as a practitioner, you're going to inevitably have to deal with things like that and be prepared to handle it at the moment to assist while we direct you know to the proper professional. And I, I say that because. I know in my years of doing this, and maybe maybe it's something you actually told me one day, or maybe it was one of our mentors who mentioned it to me, but I remember, you know, recalling that, like, I got to a point where I, I could almost tell whether or not I'd be able to help this person based on the emotional state of the individual. And I'm sure all of us have experienced that. 
because when the and I think it, I think it was you I don't know but I just you know helping me kind of work through that process because you know gung ho we want to help everybody but the emotions and the trauma can really guard and protect things and make it very difficult um, you know for a healing process to occur because the nervous system and body is so guarded and there are a lot of different conditions out there that are that are linked to emotional the emotional component whether it's things like fibromyalgia, whether it's MS, there's multiple books out there written about it. And I think it's just very interesting because we would know that the emotions and trauma changes. It's got to change the electrical impulse in the system. It, it, and, that in, and that directly impacts what the newbie is doing. Um, and so I, I think it's extremely important. I think you've opened up a really interesting door here that is going to benefit a lot of practitioners I appreciate that, and I also appreciate you bringing up the, the subject of emotion there. I think that it's interesting. I know we've talked about it over the years, but you know, other people have great insights here. And um, I think that you know, there's there's a couple there's a couple ideas that you know kind of around the around this topic. One is, I think that many times in life, you know, probably you know anyone listening to this podcast at least would agree that. We have to be uncomfortable in order to make change, right? If if we're if we're comfortable, our brains don't see any reason to invest the energy and resources to to make a change, whether it's behaviorally or you know building muscle or building a callus on the skin. You know there has to be enough irritation or discomfort for to make you know to, to make a change. And so, uh, you know, of course, this this what we experience as discomfort has an emotional component. Otherwise, it wouldn't mm-hmm. be uncomfortable, right? That, uh, that's our subjective experience of that. And so one of the things that I like about these treatments is that, you know, in responsibly and in, in, in relationship with whoever, you know, the, the, the practitioner and whoever is receiving treatment or, or is under their care, you know, you get do it in an appropriate way. But, but being able to push people there, I think, is able to elicit some emotion and create an opening for that type of change to happen. And I think using a tool like the newbie where, you know, it's part of this methodology where we're pushing people outside their comfort zone, but in a responsible way. Um, you know, I think that kind of opens up Avenue where people who might, who, you know, there's kind of more, some people, some people come in and are ready to go and, and give it their all. Some people come in and are a little more guarded. And I think those, those people on the margins that might not get as much benefit from, from their, from, you know, a therapeutic encounter, we're able to help kind of change the environment and, and force the issue a little bit to to where more people can can participate emotionally and, and psychologically and spiritually in that way and and get more benefit there. So uh, I think I think there's something there that, that you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's worth mentioning. I don't know that I can you know really yeah. state it any more eloquently uh, than that. <laughs> I wish I could, you, you state things a lot more eloquently than I do, um, <laughs> but. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many of these things out there that people come to see us, and I use us in a general sense of newbie practitioners. A lot of times they come to us because they're at the end of their rope. Like, I I know a lot of people where I am located do. They've done everything. And I think this is an area that practitioners could really, really benefit from by understanding how the trauma and how the emotions rewires things. It rewires what the body wants to do because, again, it's in that guarded state. Um, you know, and the newbie's got the power to assist with that. And the more educated and knowledgeable we are about how these different emotions influence different conditions, it just allows us to be able to help these people even that much more, um, even that much better. But another interesting element of it is the capability of the, the newbie with microcurrent. Um, and something Dr. Carroll's discussed before of, you know, working on the limbic system. And... I have not gone down that path yet, but I know that it's there and there's availability to do it, you know? Yeah, for sure. And one, one other comment just to piggyback on that for, for why that's relevant and important. I mean, it's it's probably, it's probably obvious why, but you know, in, in uh, the body keeps the score, for example, Dr. Vanderkalk talks about uh, findings on what happens in the brain of trauma survivors about how, you know, for instance, their amygdala is going to be is going to be lit up like they're on alarm all the time. They're going to have 
you know, changes in activity between the left and right sides of their brain. They're going to have uh, deficits in function in the, in the prefrontal cortex, some of these areas around executive function. So there's, there's these interesting changes that happen in, in the brains of, of people who, who go through, who experience trauma. And it has to do with things like, uh, you know, reducing executive function, right? Harm, harms their decision-making and, and planning and things like that. Also, the ability to parse time in the sense of understanding sequences of things, understanding that like this happened in the past and it's not happening now and it likely won't happen again in the future. Like there's a, a logical thing there, more of a left brain oriented activity. But if that part of the brain is underactive, people have these flashbacks and they re-experience the, the traumatic event as if it's happening right now. And so they don't just go through it once, but they re-experience it and go through it again and again and again. And so there's there's these these really interesting, measurable, identifiable changes in brain activity that underlie these subjective experiences too. So when you talk about some of the the changes that happen, there's you know there's several examples, and I encourage people to to read the book because mm-hmm. it's a wonderful resource. And uh, just, I say that to say that there's there are discrete measurable changes in the brain and nervous system of people there and of course if we can influence those in a you know in a positive way then there you know we we kind of have have identified a a target of intervention and if we can influence those then it gives us an avenue of course to to help people absolutely my brain goes to when a traumatic event occurs when a traumatic event occurs, I think how we process the event is extremely important. Whether you're a, a visual person, a kinesthetic mm-hmm. person, an auditory-based person, and how that is processed based on your dominant learning modality, I think influences a lot of the repercussions of that as well. You see that with people who were in a car wreck and maybe their shoulders are all locked up and they're a visual person and they didn't see that occur. They only felt it. Well, feeling is not their dominant mm-hmm. modality. The brain can kind of get jammed up. It gets stuck like that bridge is a collapse. They can't make that connection. And it's almost like some of the research that you have coming out, where we're actually able to show that we are able to change, you know, um, like influence myelin and axons, et cetera, that this is just a whole other avenue to be able to assist people. And it, this is an area that gets me really fired up, and I could, re- I could really go on about this for a while. Um, I think that uh, you're doing some really great stuff with that, man. Um, cool. Well, thank you, and uh, I'm excited to be able to collaborate with you and you know work together to bring this to, of course, people you're working with at ELP and, you know, just be able to talk yep, about it with absolutely. the starting block audience. We'll, uh, we'll wrap this up. I know we're getting close on time. Um, for anybody that's listening that doesn't know where you are, where can they find you? Uh, let's see. We've, we're on social media. We're most active on Instagram. It's uh, newfit, RFP, N-E-U, like neurological, F-I-T, RFP for rehab, fitness, and performance. Uh, our website is uh, new dot www dot new, <laughs> new dot fit. Uh, oh, we, we got the uh, new dot fit slash yeah. starting block, right? We'll get yeah. that. Yeah, uh, I got that up here too. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome, man. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. Um, I'm really stoked to see the stuff that you got going on that's going to filter down to everybody. So that's great stuff, man. Keep it up. Keep up the good work. We appreciate you. Yep. Thank you. You know, and when you said when you said filter down, actually, there's a really interesting uh, topic there of the, this filtering effect, where you know, like we we did this preliminary study, we just had an MS, we didn't even talk about it yet, but we had an MS study published, like a, a case series with seven patients. It took a few years to to get that done. That's going to lead into a larger study, so it, you know, it might take five to ten years, and then and then there's this filtering effect where it's you know understood that it might take 15 years from the time something you know something is published and really becomes established scientifically to actually filter down into day-to-day clinical practice so it can be you know 20 or 30 years for for when people start looking at basic mechanisms until things get there and, and to, you know to think about the the number of people that can be helped uh during that time you know i, I think it's i think it's it's great that we can be on here and, and talk about this where you know people can start 
trying interventions like this and the other stuff that you talk about or, you know, like I loved your episode with Jack Cruz yeah. on, on sunlight, right? You know, can, we can try stuff that's that's low and, and also shout yeah. out to Dr. J. I love Dr. J's episodes, our, mm-hmm. our mutual mentor and friend. But, uh, uh, you know, things like this that we can can try, you know, even, I mean, of course there's research coming. We're talking about that. We're enthusiastic about it. We're going to do it. Um, we want to use the research to to identify what's working, where we can make make an impact, how we can improve, where we're not might not make an impact, you know, whatever it shows. But um, also, you know, to be able to share, uh, you know, be on here and discuss and, and give people an opportunity to try different things, especially when it's a, a low risk. If we're you know we're talking about the you know there's you know virtually no adverse effects, you know, side effects and stuff like that. It's non invasive, you know, it's not not surgery, not medication, stuff like that. So to be able to have stuff that we can try before having to wait that 30 year period, I think is, is good. So oh. sorry to, sorry to detour us there. But when you said that filtering, I just think that's kind of a fascinating concept of how long it really takes stuff to get, you know, we're talking about these articles for how long it takes to filter down, generally speaking into daily practice is just kind of astounding. Oh, to me when re- I read real it. talk. I tell people that all the time, what we're doing is going to change the way that things are done in 30 to 40 to 50 years. And we've got to push through. It takes stubborn people like us, hard-headed people like us, to keep pushing through to break through that market, to do that research, and to get that information out there. You know, and we're going to take the heat and we're going to take the hits for it, but, you know, stubborn people like us, we're, we're going to be all right. We're going to push through it. But it, what we're doing now is going to pay off. Maybe not for us at the moment, but it will for our kids and our kids' kids. That's where the big change is really going to happen. You know, so Amen. Uh, cool, man. This is good stuff. Good stuff. Um, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. So guys, uh, I don't know how you didn't get any good value out of this. So I assume that this show is going to be shared all over the place. So that is some really interesting stuff. Garrett gave us some groundbreaking news. So guys go share the show. And uh, as always, bro, it's good to chat with you. And I'll yeah. see you next yeah, year. See you right? next year. <laughs> sure. We'll talk before then. I'll see you next year. <laughs> All right, man. I appreciate it. Appreciate you guys for listening. Share the show.